Welcome to the 5 by your Quattro Weekly source for rapid-fire board game reviews. In this episode, Sarah spices up her Zoom calls with meeting memos for the modern mage. I learn there's much more to the cuteness in Nana. John travels from town to town with a 19th century three-ring circus. And Justin flies the friendly and not-so-friendly skies in Sky Team. But first, Aaron collects cards in Gap. Hey, it's Aaron from GameBethus.com, and in this episode, I'm going to be talking about the game called Gap. Gap is a small box card game designed by Rico Bester and Frank Nowak, published by Funbot and Arcade Wonders. Gap is a pretty approachable card game where players are going to be playing over a series of rounds to reach a certain point threshold. The rules specify that a short game is about 15 points, a medium game is 30 points, and a long game, that's really long, is about 70 points. Whoever reaches that threshold first triggers the end of the game. Whoever has the most points wins. And by triggering that point threshold, you would pretty much win. So there's basically five suits in the game, or five different types of cards. So there's five colors. So there's green, red, yellow, blue, and purple. In order to accommodate people who may have color perception issues, there are also five different symbols for each one of the different colors. The cards can be numbered zero through nine, and nine is essentially going to loop back around to zero. Each card is also going to have the adjacent numbers in the upper corners of all the cards. So a 9 would have an 8 and a 0, much like a 3 would have a 2 or a 4. Just small numbers in the corner just to remind players of the numbers that are adjacent to that card, which will be very important to the gameplay. So based on player count, each player is going to be dealt for a 2 to 4 player game, 6 cards, and for a 5 and 6 player game, 5 cards. And the cards that you're dealt are the cards you are going to have in your hand for that entire round. In the center where everybody is playing, there's going to be four cards laid out. And your turn is fairly simple. You're going to take a card from your hand and put it in front of you. If you put down a three and there happens to be one or more threes in those four cards that are laid out in front of everybody, you would take every single three that happens to be already laid out on the table. And you're going to organize your cards in terms of colors. You're going to put greens and greens, blues and blues, so on and so forth. If you put down a number card that is not reflected in the four that are face up for everybody to see, at that point, you would look at the adjacency. So if you put down a five and there are no fives out there, then you look for the adjacency. You look for a four and you look for a six. If you see a four or a six, no matter how many there are, you just pick one of them. If there's only fours or only one four, you take that one four. If there's multiples of one of the adjacencies, you would still just pick one. And you would put that card in front of you the same way the card that you took out of your hand would also stay in front of you. And once again, you're going to organize those by color. If you put down a card that is not reflected in the four cards, nor in the adjacencies reflected in the four cards that are out, that card just stays in front of you and your turn is over. So really in your turn, you're just putting down a single card and seeing if anything matches the core number or adjacencies and then bringing those cards into sort of a tableau in front of you. You would also replenish from the deck to make sure that there's still four cards face up for the next player to take their turn. So the whole point of gap is you're really scoring for positive points the most frequent numbers you have in front of you. So if you end around with five reds as your most frequent color and one blue as your most infrequent, five minus one is four. Your score for that round would be four. Yay. But ties also count. If you scored 
three blues as your most plentiful color, but then two greens and two yellows as tied for your least plentiful, well, you have three positive points and four negative points. So you can definitely get into a negative scoring situation. And Gap, you pretty much know where you stand because you can see the cards in your hand and you can see the cards that are there when your turn begins. And there's nothing there that you need or something that's going to force you to get something to maybe take what was a small pile for your negative and force it to be a larger pile. Then you know your demise is coming. That's how Gap is played. It's, it's pretty quick, fairly simple. Well, I feel like just a rather amount of strategy. If I had to say this one detractor, I do wish that the art popped a little more, but I feel like maybe it doesn't only because they wanted to emphasize the numbers and the symbols. People who have issues maybe perceiving the colors that can really focus on what the symbols and the numbers are without really getting into too much other artwork that could be distracting. I was recently with my family at a wedding in between the ceremony and the reception. It was a little bit of a time. So I happened to have Gap in the car, ran out to get it, and we played a couple of rounds before the reception started. It's really good for that. It's good for you. have 10, 15 minutes. You can play a couple of rounds. Maybe you get to that top score. Maybe you don't. But either way, you have fun. So anyway, that's Gap from Arcane Wonders. I really enjoy it. Like quick, fairly simple card games. You might too. Anyway, thank you for listening. Take care, stay safe, and be blessed. I'm a sucker for an RPG with an unusual setting or novel mechanisms. Meeting Memos for the Modern Mage, a new solo RPG by Travis Hill, uses a setting I've never seen before, the business meeting. Not role-playing a fictional business meeting. This is a solo RPG played during an actual work meeting. And if you're thinking to yourself, meeting? My day is full of meetings then you should definitely check out this game. It's easy to play meeting memos for the modern mage. You just need a meeting. Prep takes a couple of minutes, pick a name for yourself and your adversary, and decide what the conflict is about. You bring a small pre-printed checklist to the meeting and check a box whenever events happen, like the topic doesn't apply to you, or someone speaks over someone else, or someone uses unnecessary jargon. Each event is assigned to an element, and when you check all the boxes for any element, you fill in a star. You also watch for characteristics like late arriver, oversharer, or head nodder, and fill in a star if anyone like that is in the meeting. After the meeting ends, you roll a single d6 and add one for each star you filled in. There's a chart at the bottom of the checklist that shows you how the conflict turned out based on the number you got. That's it. Those are the rules. Meeting Memos for the Modern Mage comes with a half-sheet rules explanation, but after the first play, you'll never need to look at it again. The genius of Meeting Memos for the Modern Mage is not that it takes a boring but necessary part of many people's workday and makes it fun. Gamification of work tasks is everywhere. What's special about this game is that the rewards are for the bad parts of the meeting. The more pointless and unproductive the meeting, the more successful your mage will be. Have you ever been in a meeting with three different awkward silences that lasted over five full seconds each? And were you happy about it? You would be if it meant you got to check the final box in the light element, fill in another star, and that led to victory for your mage. Meeting memos for the modern mage reminds me a bit of business meeting bingo, but it's much more interesting. The bingo cards I've seen are all just about specific jargon being used. 
In terms of my experience filling time during dull meetings, the closest analog is the website armentalkingtoomuch.com, which, as you might guess from the name, helps you track whether meetings are being dominated by men. I used to play Are Men Talking Too Much during these divisional town hall meetings where I could sit by myself and no one would see me pushing buttons on my phone, but I felt uncomfortable playing it if there was any chance of someone noticing what I was doing, which excluded the meetings where I most wanted to know if men were talking too much. Similarly, I have an issue with meeting memos for the modern mage, which is that in my opinion, this is not a game for in-person meetings. It's intended for in-person meetings. In fact, one of the characteristics you're looking for is leg jiggler, which is impossible to detect in a Zoom meeting. But I would never play this in person. Your mileage may vary. It may work for you with no problem. I just can't imagine a meeting where I could get away with checking boxes on a little piece of paper every time these specific events happened and no one noticing or trying to find out what I was doing. As it happens, I'm a remote worker, so I couldn't play meeting memos for the modern mage in person even if I wanted to because I don't have in-person meetings. Adapting the game for Zoom meetings was easy. Leg Jiggler is really the only thing on the checklist that doesn't work at all, and I changed it to Fidgeter, you know, someone who's swinging back and forth in their chair, fiddling with a pen, etc. That's easy to spot, and while it isn't as annoying in a remote meeting as it is in person, I felt like it was in the spirit of the original. My other issue with meeting memos for the modern mage, and this is not a problem with the game, more a problem with my ability to play it, but in my experience, I can't and don't want to play this game if I need to be actively involved in the meeting. I definitely won't play if I need to interact, but I even find it's a problem if the meeting topic is something important to me. In those cases, I want to be focused on the content, not on watching for things on the checklist to happen. Again, this isn't something wrong with the game. In fact, on reflection, I think it's something right with my job. The meetings I go to are not that frequent and generally pretty useful. And I don't have as much opportunity to play meeting memos for the modern mage as I thought I would. It hasn't always been like that. I've had jobs where I really could have used a game like this to make the constant flow of pointless meetings more bearable. If that describes you, you're in luck. You can buy Meeting Memos for the Modern Mage from the Presspot Games itch.io page for just $3. $3! Print off the checklist, stash a D6 in your desk, and you're in business, so to speak. How else could you spend so little to make such an improvement to one of the dreariest parts of many office jobs? That's what I call return on investment. And that's Meeting Memos for the Modern Mage. My name is Sarah. Look me up on the social medias at Ovenall. Especially if you know of other innovative solo RPGs, then I really want to hear from you. A deck of cards numbered 1 through 12 with 3 of each number. Cute critters on every card, including monkeys and tigers and pigs, oh my! Can you be the first to collect the required sets of 3 of the same number? Hi friends, this is Ruel Gaviola. On the table is Nana, a game by Kaya Mayano, with art by Laura Machaud and Sai Beppu. Nana was published in 2021 by Mob Plus Games. The version I'm reviewing is the 2022 Korean edition, published by Underdog Games. In Nana, two to four players race to collect sets of three matching cards. On your turn, you'll perform one of three actions. Reveal the lowest or highest card in your hand, have an opponent reveal their lowest or highest card, or select a face-down card on the table and reveal it. You'll then do another one of these actions, repeating an action is okay, And if the cards don't match, then your turn is over and cards are returned to their players or turned back face down. 
However, if they do match, you take a third action, and if you reveal three matching cards, for example three tens, then you take the trio and place it in front of you. Play passes to the left. You win in one of three ways. The most common way is to win if you collect three sets of matching cards. You also win if you collect the set of sevens. Finally, you can win if you collect two sets that equal seven. For example, you have a set of twos and fives. Two plus five equals seven, so you win. Likewise, you collect a set of eights and ones. Eight minus one equals seven for the victory. Confession time, dear listener. My copy of Nana sat on my shelf for months before I played it. Shout out to my friend Jin, who said it was an outstanding card game and gifted me the Korean version of Nana. This version had no English instructions, but with the help of Google Translate, I was able to cobble up my own rulebook. I read the rules, admired the cute art, and then left the game unplayed on my shelf. Fast forward to the summer of 2023. It was the week before Gen Con, and Michelle and I traveled to Chicago to celebrate our anniversary. As luck would have it, our friends Amy and Maggie of the YouTube channel Thinker Themer were also in town. We had dinner and played games at the awesome Snakes and Lattes in Chicago, which is by far the most beautiful board game cafe I've ever been to, and could be an entire 5 by review in itself. Amy and Maggie asked if we'd played Nana, describing it as a cross between Go Fish and Concentration, or any other memory-based card game. We all joked about how awful it sounded, but their enthusiasm reminded me of my friend Jin, and I remembered my unplayed copy back at home. Amy did a quick teach, and we dove right in. Wow. I wasn't ready for how great this game was. I thought back to my friend Jin's excitement for Nana, and I thought to myself, you were right, my friend. We played it several times back to back, which is always a good sign for any game. After Gen Con, Michelle and I immediately dug up my copy and played several games, confirming that Nana was indeed a delightful surprise. The simplicity of the game was expected, but the bliss of recalling the final card of a trio was totally unexpected. The restriction of what you can play, either your lowest or highest card, is what drives Nana. Sure, you might have two fives and know exactly where the third one is face down, but if you have other cards surrounding those fives, you'll have to find a way to shed those from your hand first. And by the time you do that, it might be too late. The game doesn't take longer than 15 minutes, and like our initial session with Amy and Maggie, we always play multiple games of Nana. Now, I have a terrible memory, and it ain't getting better with age. I normally approach any memory element in a game with trepidation. But Nana is different. While it does help to have a good memory, the game is so darn cute and breezy, it won't stress you out if you can't remember who played the last number 4, or where the 10 was face down on the table. It's actually funny when you can't remember where a card is or who played a card last. Every game I've played so far has a moment where players excitedly talk about how they knew where that card was, or they forgot that so-and-so played it earlier. Nana was picked up by Cocktail Games and renamed Trio. Unfortunately, they got rid of the cute critter art, and while the new Dio de los Muertos inspired art isn't bad, I much prefer the Korean and Japanese art versions. The renamed Trio has slightly changed some of the rules as well. First, all cards 1 through 12 are in play in Trio, Whereas in Nana, you'll take out the 11s for 3 players and the 11s and 12s for 2 players. And in Trio, the two main win conditions are now separate modes of play. So, you choose whether you want to win by collecting 3 sets of matching cards, or 2 sets whose sum equals 7. Personally, I prefer having both conditions in play, but of course you could simply do this in Trio. Whether you go with Nana or Trio, you're getting an unassuming and terrific card game that will spark plenty of joy on your tabletop. This has been Ruel Gaviola for the 5 by Thanks for listening. Find me on social media at Ruel Gaviola. That's R-U-E-L-G-A-V-I-O-L-A.
As a child, did you ever want to run away and join the circus? No? Yeah, me neither. But luckily we have Three Rings Circus from Devere Games to let us live out our fantasies of being the general manager of a regional circus. What's that? You don't have fantasies of being the GM of a small touring circus in the northeastern part of the United States in the late 19th century? Uh, yeah, me neither. But you know what? Three Rings Circus is still a pretty fun game with a fun theme. And if you've listened to me on the 5 by before, you know that I love Euro-style board games that don't have farming or trading in the Mediterranean as themes. I love that dichotomy whenever I can find it. Hi friends, I'm John Gonzalez. Devere has made some really great games over the last few years, and they've been on my radar since their 2020 release, The Red Cathedral. Recently, in episode 135, I covered their magnificent Lacrimosa. But for today, let's dive into Three Ring Circus, which was designed by Fabio Lopiano and Remo Consadori. Three Ring Circus plays one to four players. Yes, there's also a solo mode made by the king of solo modes, David Turkey himself. It plays in about 80 minutes, according to the box. The recommended age is 12 and up. All right, now that we're done with the basics, let me tell you about this game. Welcome to the 19th century. You and your table mates are competing Three Ring Circuses. On your turn, you'll be carrying out one of two actions. You can hire new performers and add them to your personal board, or you can move around the map and perform. You pay for a performer and you put it on the board on any of the leftmost spots that are open on any of the three columns on your board. Performers have to be placed in strictly increasing order by their numerical value and there can't be any duplicate numbers in a row. The money cards in your hand let you pay for performers, which are the actual performers themselves, so there's no need for currency in the form of paper money or cardboard tokens. Paying for cards with other cards is always a welcome brain burn as it forces you to make hard decisions on which cards to keep. The further twist here is that when you hire a new performer, you pay the difference between it and the highest value card in that row. So placing a performer that costs 15 money in front of a performer that costs 7 gives you a discount of 8. And if you're adding a lower value card, like say a 9 in that row, you don't pay anything. That's pretty clever design because it's not only a pretty ingenious way of facilitating adding performers to your board, but it also keeps the game snappy, as the amount of time you spend collecting money cards is lessened. Placing cards on your board also covers up icons that grant you additional cards and victory points. Filling out a column allows you to add end of game bonus scoring cards to your board, but this board with its 15 card slots divided by 3 isn't a magnanimous board. No, it gives, but it also takes away. Some card spaces have icons that dictate how many spaces you move when doing the move and perform action, and how much income you gain when you perform. Some card spaces have icons that dictate how many spaces you move when doing the move and perform action, how many additional income you gain when you perform, and how many pedestals you have at a given moment. Pedestals being a necessary item when performing in medium cities, more on this later. To perform, you start off by checking your personal board to see how many locomotive icons are visible and then travel up that many spaces and perform at a location. There are three types of locations, small towns, medium cities, and main cities. Small towns earn you money cards, which are lower value cards, uh, featuring performers on them. The amount of money cards is boosted based on how many icons are visible on your board. And in a very thematic manner, you earn an additional card for every adjacent small town that has yet to see a performance. You place one of your circus tent markers on the small town to indicate that you have performed there. Performances in medium cities require a certain amount of pedestals which are granted by your performers. Having your performers in certain arrangements can boost up your pedestal count if you puzzle and plan accordingly. Some cities will grant you a temporary pedestal bonus if you have the performer they want, like say a cowboy or a clown for example. 
You then place one of your circus tents on an available spot and choose a reward of either victory points or ticket cards. These ticket cards have higher value performers like elephants, tightrope walkers, and tigers, oh my. The higher your pedestal rating, the higher your reward. Large cities require specific performer cards of higher values. We're talking about elephants, tightrope walkers, and tigers, oh my. This is the big leagues, and a good chunk of victory points are at stake. You get victory points for your headline act, that is the elephants, tightrope walkers, and tigers, oh my, I'll stop, sorry about that. But you also get points for having certain acts to the left and right of the headline act on your personal board. Add to this the urgency of getting additional VP for being the first and second to perform, and you got yourself a pretty decent placement and timing puzzle. Adding to that pressure is the dreaded Barnum Circus. Every time anyone performs, Barnum's caravan moves one space. Every time it reaches a main city, a regional scoring will soon happen. We look at that particular region, and whoever has the most presence there, i.e. circus tents in their own color, gets 10 victory points. Second and third places get some other amounts, I don't know. Once Barnum makes a complete circuit around the map, there's a final regional scoring, and the game ends. Naturally, whoever has the most victory points wins. Whew, that was a lot. The game seems heavier than it actually is, and I would recommend it for players that are looking for something to introduce their friends to area majority. The game is compelling and not too long, playing in about an hour and a half. The game ramps up a bit as the more performances there are, the faster Barnum moves. Also, when moving both players and Barnum ignore spaces that are occupied by circus tent markers, further hastening the game's end. So yeah, the game has a brilliant sense of urgency. The art by Ed Duvals is bright and very eye-catching. It does well to capture the thrilling acts of circuses of yore. For those of us that are aware of the historic and horrific treatment of circus animals, Devere has a promo pack of cards that replaces the animal performers in the game with mechanical animals which is pretty neat, but I don't have the faintest idea of how to acquire it. I know some people got it at Gen Con this year. The board game geek listing for it notes that proceeds from the sale of this deck benefits the Mona Foundation. Hopefully we'll see it as an option again soon. So yeah, check out Three Ring Circus from Devere Games. For the 5 by I'm John Gonzalez. Thank you for listening. Hey gang, Justin Bell here with the 5 by Last year I had the chance to attend Spiel, the big gaming convention in Essen. Germany. While I was there, I did a meeting with the folks from Le Scorpion Mask. I believe my French friends will tell me that I need to lean in, so let's go with Le Scorpion Masque. It's the deep voice part that I'm working on, like croissant. Anyway, I met with Joel, the marketing lead for the publisher, and we talked about the 2023 catalog. The game that caught my eye was a prototype for something called Sky Team, designed by Luc Raymond. Even in its prototype form, I knew Sky Team was going to be a winner. Here's how I knew. The setup is simple. Exactly two players, in other words, not solo, not three players, but exactly two players, have to land a commercial airplane. Imagine a flight landing in Montreal, and a pilot and a co-pilot have to do everything right to safely land a passenger jet. It sounded simple, so Joel and I did a demo. At its core, Sky Team is a dice placement game that plays in about 15 minutes. One player is the pilot, they roll blue dice. The other player is the co-pilot, they roll orange dice. A plain dashboard, full of dice placement positions, sits between the two players. That dashboard's got gauges, switches, an axis that shows the way your plane is tilting, and two tracks that show the distance to the airport, as well as showing your air traffic control tower with other planes trying to land at the same airport. In each round, players strategize on a plan for the upcoming round, 
a few things have to be checked by the time the plane lands. Flaps have to be activated, the path for your plane has to be cleared of other planes by the tower, brakes have to be turned on, landing gear has to be deployed. This is vital because here's what I haven't told you yet. After dice are secretly rolled behind a player's screen, the pilots cannot talk during the dice placement phase of each round. So partners have to be aligned, but they don't know the results of their partner's specific roles before beginning to place their own dice. That's when the magic of Sky Team begins. Each pilot has four six-sided dice in their color. Two of those dice each round have to be used specifically on speed and on axis. Let's talk axis for a second. If one pilot places a five, then the other pilot later places a four, the plane tilts one click in the direction of the higher numbered die. Spin too far in one direction over the course of the game, and the plane spins out of control, and you crash. Game over. When the plane lands, it has to land on a level axis because, you know, runways. The same thing with speed. The pilots have to work together to ensure they are flying not too fast and not too slow, but just right. With their other two dice, each round, pilots have to slowly work towards their job-specific goals. One pilot has to work on the flaps. Another has to work on the brakes. The co-pilot has more placement options to alert the tower and get other planes out of your plane's flight path. The game is designed so that you may or may not win on one of the last few turns of the game, which creates some very interesting drama. In fact, that demo play I did with Joel in Germany, we won on the very last turn of the game. Each turn had interesting, yet silent, decisions, and working with your partner is such a joy as you try to guess at the numbers that will work to level the plane, manage speed, and take care of all the tasks needed to stick the landing. Now here's what I didn't know in Germany. That the final production of Sky Team would have so much stuff. Seriously, the Sky Team box has a bunch of content to keep the experience spicy. More than 20 missions in a logbook that progressively makes the game a little bit harder. Different factors to change gameplay, like managing fuel, flying at specific angles to land the plane, and even managing the actions of a training intern while also worrying about, you know, landing the plane. The production is great, and the price point is under 30 US dollars. Now that I've played a review copy a few more times, I know Sky Team is a game any two-person group will enjoy. For more of my tabletop content, check out my profile at www.meeplemountain.com. You can also find me on Instagram, Twitter, and threads at Justin Bell Says. That's J-U-S-T-I-N. B-E-L-L-S-A-Y-S. Thanks for listening. Now get out there and roll some dice. You've been listening to The 5 By, your monthly source for board game reviews. Follow us on Twitter at 5 By Games. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 5 By Games. Join our BGG Guild number 2810. Listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And check out our website at 5bygames.com. If you like what we do here or want to support our work, visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash 5 By Games. Thanks for listening. For more shows like this, check out the Goonhammer Media Network. More info at media.goonhammer.com.